Today's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, we got a chock-full show today, and a lot to get to, but first I want to mention your new book is out, and I know you've been working on this for a long time, The Guy with the Sign, and I remember when you wrote the column that you got the title for the book from, but why don't you talk real quick about the book? It's a lot of your faith in you columns from uh, recent years. So yes, yeah, yeah, it's a, my newest it's first Facebook really says 2012, you know, hint, hint, Christmas coming, Hanukkah, all that stuff. And um, I think, you know, people like the faith writing will love it. Now, the other thing is I think a number of people just the last few years discover the faith writing when they moved it into the Sunday paper before it used to be, buried on saturday and you needed like two bloodhounds and a map to find it um now it's usually out front on the metro section so uh there it is and it's real easy to get an autographed copy terryplutobook.com in other words terryplutobook run all those letters together terryplutobook.com and uh, you could get it there and they'll send you a signed copy i signed like 400 of them over the last week so they got nice. plenty and I don't want to like spend too long on the book, but the, the the guy with the sign, that column was about what do you do when you see a homeless person with a sign asking for money and all the like the moral dilemma that we go through when we see that. And if you haven't read Terry's Faith in You column, again, it's not preachy. It's it's like spiritual nourishment every week. Check it out. And I, I think you're going to love the book. And you're right, Terry. It's a great, great holiday present. So, all right. On to sports. We got Guess Guardians. What, David. <laughs> yeah, what's the up? The Guardians no longer have a sign saying we need a manager. That's right. Let's start with the Guardians. Then we'll get into the Browns and the Cavs and, and Bob Knight. Oh, man. I, we, I, I told a Bob Knight story on the podcast last week. Yep. And then as soon as we finished taping, we found that they had passed. But, we, mm-hmm. but uh, we're going to talk about Bob Knight later, too. But the Guardians, Stephen Vogt. 39 years old, and Terry, I, I think your column yesterday, you started with, like, what did they see in this guy, right? Why don't you talk about what you learned talking to your sources, about what the Guardian saw giving the job to a 39-year-old guy who's never managed before and is only one year removed from playing? Well, I try to, I mean, basically, I'm paid to write opinions. And I'm like, how am I really supposed to have an opinion on a guy who didn't manage in the minors at all, coached one year? I mean, you could have an opinion saying he needs more experience, but to say whether he's good, bad, whatever, we don't know. And I've been getting emails about things, and the answer is we don't know. So I decide, why did they hire him? And so I, I've spent a lot of time talking to some sources, and the Guardian said, well, first of all, what made Francona such a great manager? And you could argue in-game strategy. I don't think anybody ever said Francona was a super in-game strategist. You know, it's not like Earl Weaver who invented the stats of, by the way, he invented the stats of hitters versus pitchers. Until that point, when Weaver was managing the Orioles, people just said righty-lefty. That was it. And I, I covered Weaver in 1979, and he had been doing it for several years. And he told me it began when, um, he noticed Mark Belanger kept getting hits off of Nolan Ryan. Belanger was a very light-hitting infielder, barely hit 200. And then he – so he had this PR person check, and turned out that Belanger was something like 7 for 18 off of Nolan Ryan. So he wondered if there was other stuff like that. So they just started doing the stats. So he invented that. And Weaver had other things, too. He was kind of an early moneyball guy. Francona was never that. But why was Francona so good? 
And what they said it was his ability to get along with anybody, you know, from the clubhouse guy to the security guard to fans he would run into to, you know, the, the regular hardcore baseball people to when sometimes they had him sit there with the millionaire corporate sponsors. And if you think about, as Frank Kona often said, the baseball clubhouse, he always said, they talk about diversity. We have natural diversity because it's not just that you have white players and African-American players and Latino players, Asian, but you have to remember the Latino players come from several different countries. You know, a Venezuelan isn't necessarily the same as a Puerto Rican. It's not necessarily the same as the Dominican Republic. In fact, what I learned, too, over the years is that some of the Dominican players who were born up towards Haiti, for example, Bartolo Colon was one, uh, are quite different culturally than, say, those who lived on the coast. And just like in America, if you think about it. So bringing all those guys together to be able to uh, unify them and, and make them a team, which Francona did every year, they go, that's what we need. We need great leadership, great communication, and that. I mean, it's a given. You have to have the basics of baseball. But their feeling was they could use their coaching staff, their support staff, to help vote, um, gain kind of the nuances and the minutia of the game. But they feel he brings that big attribute. Yeah, and Terry, you know, he played in the league for what for the majors for like ten years. And if if you get a chance to check out some of his background, like when he retired. It was like a huge thing in Oakland. Like the yeah. fans loved this guy. All of his teammates loved him. All the the coaches and managers loved him. And he was just, you talk about building relationships like that shows you, I mean, he, he wasn't even like, he's not Johnny Bench, right? He's like, he's a, he's kind of a good, solid, dependable catcher. And the, the two things that kind of stuck out to me were that, Terry, just how beloved he was in Oakland, which really speaks to his ability to connect with people. And the other thing, like, and you've talked about this a lot, Terry, is that uh, Terry Francona had the Guardians play baseball the right way, right? Like running to first base hard. We're not going to give away outs. We're going to do little things. And I saw somebody filmed Stephen Vogt the day before his last game. And he was he was in the bullpen with his catcher's gear on blocking balls for like half an hour. And the guy who shot the video is like, Stephen Vogt is retiring, playing his last game in 24 hours, and this is what he's doing <laughs> the day before he right. retires. And I thought, this is the, this is kind of the spirit of what Tito wanted this team to be. Is like, we're going to do little things. We're going to do it right. We're going to put the work in. And I thought that was really encouraging if you're a Guardians fan to have those two kind of Tito-esque qualities of connecting with people and spending the time to do little things right. I thought that really – is promising if you're a Guardians fan looking at Stephen Vogt. And the fact that he's spent a significant amount of time in Oakland is important too because, you know, Oakland, low budget, no frills baseball there. Because it's always dangerous sometimes, and I'll go back to when the um, Indians in the old days, and I forgot what year it was, I want to say it was 1982, something like that. They hired Mike, I was on the beat, they hired Mike Ferraro, who came from the Yankees. He had played in the minors with the Yankees and was a coach with the Yankees. And he came to Cleveland, and it was culture shock. You know, they don't have a lot of money, all this. And he just really struggled with that. So I think Vogt will have those things. But, you know, he what do we know? He doesn't know. He, he doesn't really know what he's going to be facing. 
And he spent one year as a bullpen coach in Seattle. Now, as one person, uh, one source told me, you know, well, what about Kevin Cash? Kevin Cash was a catcher, spent two years as a bullpen coach with uh, Cleveland, and then, um, excuse me, Tampa Bay surprised the baseball world by hiring him. It took a couple of years for him to get it going there, and he's become an elite manager. And I'm sure there's other examples of that. And I'm going to bring you in first on this one. So the fans are mad. Why didn't they get Greg, Greg Council? It just proves the Guardians are cheap. David? <laughs> uh, so we were talking last week, Terry, about uh, – Tito making what four point one four point two million dollars a year, and he was the, I, th- I think you but, found out that he was the highest paid manager, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Craig Council is getting forty million dollars from the Cubs over five years. Yep. It's like double for five mm-hmm. years. Were you surprised by that? Yes, uh, I was. But the the point is this: Council wasn't coming to Cleveland. Council lives in Whitefish Bay. Which you could now? How far is that from Chicago, David? You're a Chicago. Oh, it's, yeah. I don't know. I, I know Wisconsin a little bit, but maybe a couple hours. Not ninety miles. Yeah. So not even that from Wrigley Field. I've Googled it. Wrigley Field or Whitefish Bay. And he has two kids in high school, and he's a Wisconsin native. So I always felt from the beginning he was just trying to drag up the price of the Brewers uh, with these different interviews he had i mean if he really wanted the biggest contract possible where would he have gone that he interviewed the mets yeah and he could have kept squeezing and squeezing there uh so he really wanted both he wanted the big bucks and be close to home and the cubs now how do you feel about this the council was under contract till the end of october now the Mets and the Guardians asked permission from the Brewers to talk to him, and it was granted, so they both interviewed him. The Cubs did not. They waited until November 1st, and then they swept in and interviewed him and then hired him. And, by the way, uh, the manager of the Cubs had no clue uh, what was going on. David Ross. Exactly. By the way, he's another guy that went straight almost from playing to, to uh, managing. David Ross did not hear. So why didn't they think about this? Why didn't they ask permission? They didn't. Well, they waited until his contract was up, right? But they yeah. knew they could. They they knew they could offer him geographic convenience for his family no, no. and money, right? Even more than that, it's sneaky. If they'd asked permission. It would have leaked out that the Cubs want to talk to Council. Meanwhile, if you're David Ross, they didn't really want to get rid of Ross unless they could really get an upgrade. So they, this is this is like I said, it's sneaky, and I'm not sure how I feel about all that if I were even Council actually. So what they did, their feeling was they would keep Ross unless they can get Council. They didn't want people to know they were talking to Council, so. They waited till he became a free agent. They swooped in, and then they signed him. And then the next day, they went down and told um, Ross, which at least he found out directly from the Cubs. He did not have to find out, you know, from Twitter or whatever. But that's how the whole thing came down. And Raw and uh, 
Ross is now, he'll probably get a job. I think there's four openings. Because, I, I don't know, I thought he did a pretty decent job with the Cubs, didn't he? Or yeah, they had a good second half, especially, and then yeah. they kind of faded late. But and it's a, you know, it's everything. You, if you want payroll, if you want tradition, you want a great baseball town. It's all there. So yeah, and you want to be reasonably close to home. So your kids, you know, you could get an apartment in Chicago, keep your kids up there in Whitefish Bay, so they can finish high school. He has two of them, and commute back and forth is easy. So that's really what happened. Because you could check back on my. Uh, column when the, the thing on council broke i wrote my sources tell me this is a real long shot and so they knew it but they went after it but here was a deal there the brewers really like vote i think that was one of his stops and so the guardians felt the moment this thing came down with council that voted also interviewed for the giants job which went to bob melvin they felt we might as well go get this guy because uh he is going to end up managing somewhere. He's our guy. We want him. They went to get him. So that's sort of the background on the whole thing. So I, I have to admit, I get a little weary. It's it's about money. I mean, would they have paid $50 million? I don't die doubt it. They're not doing that for a manager. But Council was, was really trying to work, and I give him credit, you know, geography plus money plus what he felt was a chance to win. Something must have went bad with him in Milwaukee, though after nine years to, to walk out like that because he is a Wisconsin guy. And so that's the background there. So I will ask you, Dr. Campbell, okay, you're not allowed to hire counsel. This is why I'm asking fans who are emailing me. You can't hire counsel. So who do you, if you, if you don't want to vote, who do you want that's out there? Well, that, that's the thing. Like the the Guardians started with 44, 48 people on their list and yeah. ended up with a short list of five. And this was the guy they wanted if they couldn't get counsel. So I think you need to give them be- the benefit of the doubt because we don't know what, what the discussions were, what the interviews were like with these other guys. Was there a name that stuck out to you? No, um, that was a problem. Not at yeah. all. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, Clayton McCullough, Dodgers first base coach. The guy the Mets ended up hiring, who I guess the, the Guardians like to an extent, Carlos Mendoza. He spent most of his career, he managed in the minors with the Yankees, then was on their bench for many years. Um, Albert Ash from the Giants. The Giants, bullpen coach. And I've seen some other names that floated with other teams. I mean, none of them jump out. One of these guys is going to be a good manager. I don't know who it is. And the truth is the Guardians don't know who it is. And if you're the Mets who just hired Mendoza, you don't know if you, you you want to think you got the right guy, but it isn't. It isn't as if they had there were two quality managers became available. One was Bob Melvin, who's a Bay Area guy and jumped at the Giants job, and the other was Council. And you think about it, they both stayed basically close to home. Council, Wisconsin guy, took the Cubs job. Then after that, you have all these kind of baseball guys that want the job that's the truth now people can go around and around and you could argue i'd rather have mendoza than vote okay you might be right i don't know mccullough than both of them i you know they're just they're these guys they're these you know these to me they're sort of these faceless coaches that that's just not a put down but for those of us from a distance uh so to make a case it wasn't there wasn't anybody in the system that they lie. I mean, they interviewed John McDonald and whatever, but those guys were not going to get it. Sandy Alomar didn't want it. Remember that, fans. He did not want the job, and I understand that because a lot goes with this job well beyond sitting in the dugout deciding when to bunt. 
So you mentioned um, David Ross there, Terry, and Stephen Vogt, both catchers. We've seen, boy, if you go back in baseball history, there's so many catchers who have become managers, and some of them great managers and Hall of Fame managers. But what is it about catchers, you think? And I know everybody has theories on this, but what is it about catchers that makes them good manager candidates? Well, in the old days, they would say, well, they're behind the plate. They see the whole game in a different way. You have to work with the pitcher. But I'll argue now in modern baseball, it's even more. Because the catcher is developing game plans now, not only with the pitcher and the pitching coach. Here come the analytics guys. Here come a scouting report. So every day, the catcher is basically looking at at least one part of the kind of material a manager is looking at, where you're getting it from all different angles. And I think that has helped him. I know when he was in Seattle, um, Scott Service, the manager there, I was talking with Tom Hamilton last night, and he was doing some checking on him. And Seattle was bringing him, him being vote into these high-level meetings because they really liked him. And they realized talking to him, because of what he had been through catching in the modern era, um, he just uh, he just grasped it. Remember how Francona always said, you just can't throw any kid back there. It's not easy. They put a lot on your plate. Fans, I think, don't realize what he's talking about. Even you and I, David, don't know the full amount of material and things that are thrown their way. Uh, so that's why they think uh, Volsman basically fast-tracked for this job. We'll see how it works out. But I, I can't second-guess it. I cannot even have a hard, a strong opinion. I could say they're rationale. They could be right. Uh, and I'm still waiting for somebody to come up. And I don't want to hear Joe Madden, who's 150 years old. Or you know, We, we don't want to do this. It's, it's got to be somebody that's in the game and current. Now, Dave, the interesting thing will be, you know, the Guardians gave, you know, Terry Francona a lot of leeway. This is not this was not a job. There are some franchises where at two o'clock the analytics slash GM brings down the lineup for the day. Here's your lineup. You know, you're almost like a line supervisor in the warehouse. And uh, then they come, all right, you know, you need a reliever in the fourth inning, this one, sixth inning, that one. They would lay basically lay out kind of scenarios with what pitchers to use. I mean, even Kevin Cash, remember when he was at Tampa Bay, and I, I know in the World Series he did it, and I think they're still doing it. They did not want most of their pitchers to even start to face batters in the third time through the lineup. It was almost a rule. So now, will the Guardians become one of those teams, or will they still be a little more free form like Francona was? Yeah, and that's why the Rays came up with that. What they, what they don't call it the starter; they call it the. Uh, <laughs> they put a guy in the opener. That's right. Yep. They put a guy in to pitch for the first time through the order, and then they pull him and put in the real starter. Yeah, so. an inning or two, and on top of that, they even had all kinds of stats to show who ought to be an opener, who not ought to be an opener. Um, so that's where um, baseball is at in terms of modern baseball, modern managing. Uh, the Guardians, this goes all the way back to when Maniaca was managing. And I remember Azula Cabrera, Estrubo Cabrera was one of their best hitters at the time. And all of a sudden, they bat him second. And I asked Atka, by the way, Atka was a classic guy that he understood analytics. Um, 
he really knew his baseball. Nice guy, but didn't have the leadership ability to deal with the different players. And that's what sunk him. You know, he's been a career third base coach ever since. He's a great third base coach. Okay, so story continues. So I said, why are you batting Cabrera second? Because to me, the, the best hitter ought to be third. And I forgot who was in that lineup. But it was. he goes, well, you know, our analytics show that in the modern baseball era, uh, if you don't bat a guy first, because remember they used to bat Grady Sizemore first sometimes, you bat him second. By the way, the Yankees, remember, they were leading off Aaron Judge. The idea right. somewhere, there's some logic into it. The higher you bat in the order, the more like word bats over the course of a season you will get. Well, they were actually pushing Francona to do this for quite a while, a couple of years. But Jose Ramirez liked to bat third. And on top of it, especially when they had Ahmed Rosario and, and you know Quan in front, he liked that spot. And uh, Francona resisted it. He said, no, we're not doing Jose's comfortable third. They moved him to batting second when Rosario left. And then on top of that, uh, Naylor got hurt. The whole lineup kind of got trashed. Uh, so that was how that all came about. And then if you recall, when Naylor got healthy, they didn't move Jose back to the third spot. They had Quan. Jose, two, Naywer, three, and Kel- Cole Calhoun or somebody batting cleanup. <laughs> I mean, he was. And these other, they had no cleanup hitter because that was kind of an analytic-driven lineup. So there were times when uh, Francona held his ground and times when he acquiesced. Yeah, and the, I, I probably have told you this Maniacta story before, but this was when I knew that he was not going to be around a whole lot longer was that game they played, I think it was against the Yankees in Yankee stadium. And there was a foul ball down the left field line mm-hmm. and it went into the stands. And I forget who was playing left field for the Yankees went in and reached his glove over and, and held it up. Oh yeah. And do you remember this play? And, and his glove was empty. The umpire calls the batter out whoever I forget who was batting yeah. and the, the Yankees run off the field and you look 10 seconds later and a Yankee fan is holding the ball up yeah. and Manny Acta did not leave the dugout to go argue that call. It was before replay. And I think he lost the team that day. And, and this is the kind of stuff that Stephen Vogt, I think from what I've learned about him, that he will stand up for guys. And, you know, you, you don't build relationships with guys and then have something like that happen and not contest it or not yeah, stand up for them. And I think it wasn't because Manny was stupid or whatever. I think he froze. I really do. I think at oh, times totally. he, he froze. Yeah. He, he just didn't react to the situation. And that's what I heard sometimes when there were problems with players or whatever. He didn't react. I mean, you remember when Trevor Bauer threw the ball over the center field wall when Francona came out? Well, what we saw, we saw Bauer go in. You didn't see Francona at first. Then Bauer goes down the tunnel, the tunnel, and then I was told Francona went out there and just called him every name you could imagine. And the players heard it. It wasn't, quote, in front of them, but it was in front of them. Because he knew right then, right there. Of course, a day or two later, they traded him uh, on top of that. So that's what I think, like you mentioned, Vote was willing to call. And he has a – remember, Mike Napoli, Jason Giambi, those guys had personalities that Francona liked in the locker room to help him. That will be a key thing, too. So Volt's going to have to have a couple of guys, not only the coaching staff, but on the team itself uh, to help keep order. All right. Good stuff, Terry. Oh, but you mentioned Grady Sizemore. We just found out today that Grady Sizemore is now going to be a coach with the White Sox. going to be, I think, base running and um, 
outfield and base running, if I remember correctly. So we'll be seeing Grady Sizemore around the ballpark a lot more. So there you go. Interesting. He was always a very quiet guy, David. Um, Knew knew his stuff. So I'll be curious to see how, how that plays out with him. All right. Hey, let's take a break here. When we come back, uh, we got a lot to talk about with the Browns, the Cavs, uh, some Bob Knight stuff. We do have a couple of listener letters we want to get to from our 100th episode a while back. We're still going through those. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Oof, a lot going on with the Browns, Terry. They're 5-3, and three, and there's two games coming up for them this Sunday at Baltimore, and then the 19th they're going to be home against the Steelers. They're going to go a long way toward deciding the AFC North. Uh, we were up in the press box for the game Sunday, and, man, heading to the Ravens, they're hitting the Ravens at just a rough time. I think the Ravens are probably, people are saying, the best team in the NFL right now, really on a roll. What are you seeing from them, and what do you think the Browns' chances are? Well, they're on a four-game winning streak. They're averaging, I think it's 31 points a game. Um, and they just beat what I thought was a pretty good Seattle team, 37-3. to I don't care that West Coast teams struggle when they go East. It's like, no, they weren't going by 20 mule team, you know, wagon trains. They fly. And so I, something's going on there in Baltimore. They're pounding people. Lamar Jackson is cooking with that Todd Munkin offense. I believe he's completing 72% of his passes. And the defense is overachieving. You know, I had one NFL person told me that, you know, Schwartz has the big reputation, the big coordinator, and he's really good. But so is McDonald for Baltimore. He's just not, he's younger and he's not as well known. And you remember what he did to poor DTR. I mean, what they just totally confused him. So, this is going to be, I think, a real battle of watch how the defensive coordinators on both sides handle this. And I want to see because Schwartz, they didn't do so well uh, against Jackson the first time. Well, not many people are, Terry. I mean, Lamar Jackson no. is probably one of two or three front runners for the MVP this year. And Todd Munkin has just got his passing efficiency numbers just at levels they've never been at before. And that makes him an even tougher riddle. Uh, do you think that the Browns, well, I, what do you think the Browns need to do to contain him? Because it's so hard. And we talked about this before, but you play, you play zone defense. You're, you know, you're, you're giving up some things, but if you play man, he's going to run on you. So it's such a tough equation. And with the way their running game is going, it's, it's not going to be easy out there. And Gus Edwards is hammering people inside too. There are other, one of the running backs. I mean, they missed, they, they get, they lost Dobbins. They've lost some other guys. They're still good. I mean, I was talking with someone else about this. The Steelers and the Ravens are like never bad. They're never bad. I mean, I'm talking the last 15 years or whatever you want to use. They're either pretty good, really good, or on the verge of greatness. And that's what you want to happen in Cleveland. Not where I, they have what I call these Haley Comet seasons that just show up once, 2007, they won 10 games. 2020, in between, coaches, managers, quarterbacks all getting fired, uh, GM as in terms of managers. You want to see where the Browns get to, like, they're always, at the minimum, pretty good. Because right now this whole division is pretty good. And with Joe Burrow being reasonably healthy, the Bengals are going to be in that category. So to me, these next two games, David, are kind of a 
a little bit of a judgment. Are, are, will the Browns enter into that thing over the next couple of years where at the very least they're pretty good? Your thoughts? Well, if the season ended today, and we've seen this this week, Terry, if the season ended today, all the teams in the AFC North would be in the playoffs, which mm-hmm. I don't think has ever happened. Um, They've had three. Yeah, right. But this, this would be four with the five, the group at yeah. five and three there. Um, they, I think they would have all three wild card spots. So, but you know, to get to your point, like it's one thing to bring in a coach, but it's another thing to have organizational wide stability. And I know this is something that the Haslam's have been just wanting for the longest time is alignment, they call it, and everybody working together on the same page and knowing what to expect from, you know, the, the front office knows what to expect from the coaches, the coaches know what to expect from the players. And I think all four of these teams are in a really good spot with that right now, mm-hmm. where they've got stability, they know what they're all about, they know their identity. And it, it, this is just going to be a dogfight to the end in terms of who's going to win the division. It's just, but this is, this is probably the best the division has ever been with all four teams. I remember the start of the season, you asked me how I thought Deshaun would play. I said, I think he might be pretty good. Not great. Not awful. I just felt he was still going through things. But pretty good quarterback play with this defense. And by the way, you know, Kevin Stefanski and Bill Callahan have the second best rushing attack in the NFL. Now, I have not looked after uh, the game, but that's what it was going into the game in Arizona. Number two, that's with Chubb only playing six quarters. And you could go to any average NFL fan, at best, the only running back they'll name is Kareem Hunt. They couldn't name the other two. And so they have developed this around the offense. So even if Deshaun is, quote, pretty good, the Browns should be in very good shape to make the playoffs because they have upgraded the roster. Now, if that doesn't happen, then, of course, the Haslam's will look at at everything. But how did you think um, Deshaun did? I thought the longer the game went on, the better he played. Um, I don't know that that's going to be enough against Baltimore on Sunday. And the other thing, Terry, we haven't talked about at all today is is the the injury to Jedrick Wills Jr. He's out about six weeks um, after getting rolled up on his knee the other day. And they're doing what you just – all the stuff you just said, they're yeah. doing it without their two starting tackles now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jack Conklin's been out since the beginning, and now Jedrick Wills is out. And, and so I don't – it's too late to probably move Dewan Jones. There was some talk the other day about them no, moving Dewan Jones no, 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 to no. left tackle. You can't do that in season, right? No, no, no. Um, and he played mostly right tackle at Ohio State, correct? Yes. Yeah. First of all, this is a guy that people thought wasn't going to make it out of training camp because he was so fat and sweating and throwing up and not even to finish uh, the drills. Two, he then ends up playing right away, which I don't think anybody assumed because Conklin get hurt. Two, he's certainly an average to above average right tackle as a rookie, and you don't move him right now because then you're possibly weakening two positions because odds are he'll be mediocre perhaps at best at left tackle because he'll be learning a new position it is different and then who will you be throwing Hudson or whoever you throw on at right tackle that guy's not that good anyway so at least if you could know your right side's going to hold up 
and you throw Hudson at the left side. Now you're more of a line guy than that. So then how, how do you handle that? In terms of not moving them or in terms of which part of it? Uh, okay. We keep, we're keeping, we're keeping Jones at right tackle. Yes, how do you handle, yeah. how do you, how, how do you handle left tackle then? Well, I not, you just have Hudson's job is to be the swing tackle. Like that's what he went into the season as. So he's probably been doing both knowing that he could go in at either side at either time. So I think you're right, Terry, you just keep him. But how do you, left protect, how do you protect and him and help him? What, yeah. So what you do, you know, they're going to put tight ends out on his side a lot. And I think they're going to have to give running back help out there. I mean, guess, I think the Ravens guess, defense. Guess um, who can do that? No, you you hit it. Running back help. And guess who can do it? Kareem Hunt and Nick, <laughs> Jerome Ford. Right? And Nick Harris. Ooh, interesting. Putting Harris in the wherever you want slot or however you want to call it on that side. He's having a grand old time knocking everybody on their butt. It's working. That's part of the reason. It is running working. Attack. So you do have a sneaky option that could help. So you got the Sean Watson and Mari Cooper drawn plays up in the sand. Here's Terry Pluto sure. drawing up Nick Harris as a secret weapon against the Ravens. And they, and That's, they probably have that. some, some, some <laughs> analytics guy making a quarter million dollars a year to come up with the same thing. <laughs> and you did it here for nothing. How about that? So, um, Let's see. Yeah, I uh, they, got, yeah, go ahead. they got this big guy, 300 pounds. He's sort of playing fullback anyway. He's knocking everybody over. We'll put him over there where the, the guy is going to need some help knocking some defensive guys over. Oh, I love that. If that comes to pass, I, I'm just going to be sitting watching the game and just thinking of you the whole time, Terry. That's brilliant. Um, hey, so speaking of coaching decisions, like Kevin, Kevin Stefanski deserves some credit here for the way he's kind of negotiated this season, right? I mean, they're, they're halfway through eight games. This has not been easy. And he probably deserves more credit than a lot of people around the league are giving him. Would you agree with that? Oh, watch it. You're going to get the kind of emails I do because I have the <laughs> last two weeks written that, you know, you're you're not allowed to say Kevin Stefanski's done a pretty good job in the same sentence unless you say – Kevin Stefanski has not done a pretty good job in the same sentence because, and this is tough. It's kind of like life or almost politics or things like we get caught on a certain wavelength and it's hard to move off it. I mean, I got an email said, you know, this guy must have four horseshoes in his back pockets. You know, they won one game when the San Francisco kicker Moody missed that field goal. You know, another game when they got 14 pass interference penalties on P.J. Walker's drive. He had it all, you know. I mean, the 27-3 to win was – he gave them that one. But the rest were a lot like uh, – there was stuff happened at the end of the Colts game. I forgot what it was. So, Stefanski is just the luckiest man on earth. Oof. Well, what do they say in the NFL, Terry? Your record is your record. You're as good as what your record says you are. And they're five and three after eight games. They've been missing their starting right tackle, their star running back, and their quarterback has been down for a month. So I think if you ask most Browns fans if they'd be happy with five and three, given all that, they'd probably say okay. And this was really interesting. The pack. Remember the the tight end screen down the middle of the field mm-hmm. against the Seahawks for the touchdown that they ran a couple of weeks ago. The Packers stole that and ran okay. it Sunday and used it and scored a touchdown on the same exact play. So when your head coach is having copycat things happen to him, yeah. 
with other coaches, like, you know, he's doing something right. So, I mean, I'm, I know Kevin Stefanski has a few things he would have liked back, uh, especially running the ball on third, on fourth and, uh, and three. third and three, yeah. but five and three and in position, um, I think things could be a lot worse. So I want to, I want There's another narrative out there. It's like, well, the only receiver they're throwing to is Amari Cooper in this. Okay, there is some validity to that. But what I'm happy to see is the guy you just mentioned, Najoku, getting more attention and more touches. And in the modern NFL, isn't it true, like, these really good tight ends are just basically another receiver? I mean, yes, they block, but they're important out there. You want them. I've always been – once uh, Najoku emerged last year, just matured, and um, played better. I've wanted him to get the ball more. And I want to say this. I, I was looking um, at Najoku the other day in the locker room. Uh, you know, it's Burns, which there. And this is like a month old or whatever. I tell you, that skin and everything, that still looks really raw. I don't know how he's playing with some of that stuff. I mean, it, it just looks painful to, to stare at it. It's different colors and um, – I was talking to somebody with the Browns and say, you know, the, the growth of his maturity in the last 18 months has, has been remarkable. And there was some concern because if you remember 18 months ago is when they gave him that big contract extension. And, you know, would he then kind of, you know, basically sit on his money? And no, it seemed to have uh, inspired him and matured him, which often is not the case. Yeah, and to play two days, well, thirty-six hours after the thing happened to him, it's, it's yeah. just Where that was the thing about the yeah. And that was that you wrote about this too, Terry. But yeah. like the people, like Brady Quinn, and people who saying that these guys don't want to play, you know, like oh, Watson doesn't want to play. He's got a two hundred thirty million dollar trust fund. Like these guys want to win, and they want to they they want to be great at what they do. The money is the money, but like when you get out on the field, it doesn't matter if you're making two hundred thirty thousand or two hundred thirty million, like. It, it's always bugged me, and I, I think that David Njoku is a good example of that. He, he and, wants and to David, win. And, David, the track record speaks. Uh, you know, some guys are hurt a lot, and so maybe they aren't as tough as the other guys. And I'm never, you know, I always preface this with, you know, I didn't like the Watson trade. I'm not a big Watson fan. And you sit by me by some games, and you know he drives me nuts when he's wandering around. I don't know what he's doing in the pocket. You know, my brains are rolling out of my head watching it. And then he ends up making a pretty decent play out of it. But all that said, I never questioned his toughness or his willingness to play because until he missed that game after Tennessee, he had played in 56 out of 57 possible games. That And he had, and the game that he pulled, actually I went back, it was the last game of the year. He had a sore back and the game meant nothing and they bagged it. Yeah, and these guys are out there banging yeah. into each other. You give people the benefit of the doubt until you see evidence otherwise. And yeah, um, Deshaun Watson wants to win. Najoku wants to win. Yeah, and the, yeah. And the record shows they want to play. So yep. uh, So we'll see. All right, Terry, we're not going to get out of the Browns segment here without our weekly kicker update. I didn't want to miss it this Uh-oh. week. Dustin Hopkins. All right. He what do you want to say about one. Dustin Hopkins this week? He missed one. He's going under 90%. The world's going to end. <laughs> no, he's just – it's just wonderful to have him. And 20 of 23 on field goals, all 13 yeah. PATs, and his 20 made field goals are, are tied for first in the league. Right, so. and that's why um, I'm always like, now take the three points. 
in these upcoming games. Analytics could just sit there. We're going to go with the, you have a hot kicker and you're, you're going to be probably in defensive games. So ride him. And that's, so the kicker is, is how about the punter? Corey Borkus. He's having some season, and I think he's fifth in the NFL. I was checking earlier today in um, to- not net punting, but total punting. There's a bunch of guys who are over 50 yards. I know. It's average. Amazing. Not, not that, you know, they take out return yardage and touchbacks. Yeah. But uh, I think punting is probably better than it's ever been in the NFL, not that we want to spend 15 minutes on it. But and, 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 a guy, and a guy getting a bad rap, because I was getting the emails on this when Cade York was struggling. Well, you know, when. Horkes was in Green Bay. They had a problem. This I forgot which kicker it was. Had like the worst year of his career, and there were whispers that he's not good at holding. Well, I remember I texted somebody high up with the Browns on that. They go, he just wrote back because I hate to admit it, but it's the kicker. It always is. So Horkes not like, only the distance, Terry, but the placement. In, yeah. You know, putting them inside the ten yard line. It's he's been he's been great this season. There's no doubt about it. So, all right, the Browns are at. Baltimore on Sunday. You will be there. Have a great trip out there. And then the following week, they're back home against the Steelers on the 19th. A lot of AFC North implications with both of those. We're going to know a lot more by the time those two are over. So, all right, Terry, let's spend a few minutes on the Cavs. They've got a road trip coming up. Uh, They're heading out of town. They're going to be playing uh, at, let's see, OKC on Wednesday night. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Then they've got a rematch with Golden State on Saturday, then Sacramento, and so Portland, it's the usual West Coast swing. I don't think they're hitting the, the uh, L.A. teams this time, but um, how are you feeling about the Cavs at this point? And it was, it was an impressive win against Golden State on Sunday night. It seems like they finally got everybody on the court and kind of were what fans thought they might look like, but what are you seeing from the Cavs? I, I saw them hold Golden State to 105 points. You know, I'm so big on that this is a defensive team. It doesn't have to be number one defensively. But the last time I looked, they were like 14th or 15th. That's not good enough. You know, they need to be in the top 10 because they're just, they're not a total run and gun team. You want to play faster, yes, but you don't want to play faster than taking a bunch of foolish three-pointers in the process. So I think they're trying to find how to play quicker, but still play smart. And by the way, Donovan Mitchell is playing so well. Oh, my goodness. It's even off to a better start than he was last year. And, uh, you know, for those, well, he really doesn't want to be here or whatever. I think he's not real worried about being here or not being here right now. I think he's, he's good. So Terry, what do you want? What do you want to see out of this road trip? Do you, you want to see the the uh, the three point shooting kind of be restrained a little bit in terms of and, and yes. the defense? Um, is there any is there a matchup you're looking to see who they play against uh, a certain particular game or any any player you're looking to, that you want to see more from? Well, you like to see Niang and Struess get their shooting back together. I love, by the way, Struess has really. Uh, brought some of that Miami toughness, and he's getting rebounds at 6'5 from the small forward spot. Um, I'm concerned about Okoro being out. I don't know. They're they're real quiet about that knee injury because he's really had a nice year. Now, that's a guy, by the way, that the faster pace has helped because you watch, he's getting a lot of breakaway layups and things like that. He's athletic and go to the rim. Instead of just having him stand in the corner like a guy waiting for a bus to come by, you know, and just he's there. 
just for a pass. No, this guy's more athletic than that. And Crowley defensively helps. And we had a discussion last week, and I'll pose that again. By the way, I heard the stat. I was really surprised. Like on jump shots this year, um, Evan Mobley shooting like 17% or something. It's 15 or 17%. He really is messed up on his shot. He needs to develop a shot that he could trust, uh, whether it's a jump hook near the basket. I mean, basically right now, his best shot is they throw him a lob and he dunks it. I believe you had the NBA in dunks last year, and that's fine. But there's more to his game, and I think perhaps they got a little hung up with let's really work on his outside shot and that. And maybe it sometimes when you work too hard on a guy's shot, you mess it up. I remember that happened with a Coro a year ago. Recall that? He went, and Chris Fedor wrote a great thing. He went to the shot factory and all this, and he came out, and I think he didn't know how he shot the ball. That's one of those things. And Perry Sikoway, I think he really pared down what he did, and he's shooting the ball a little better now, and he's also just playing more free and athletic. That just might be the deal with Mobley. So let's see how he does on this trip. And the other thing to watch you know, Ty Jerome's been out, but I have to admit, I have not liked much of what I've seen of Ty Jerome when he's played at the backup point guard spot. You know, they're they're kind of, they're hiding it well because Mitchell can do everything. So a lot of times they would have Mitchell, when Garland was out, you had Mitchell and Levert back there, or Struess can handle the ball. But I do wish they had like a real backup point guard. You know, that was when Rubio before the knee injury. And Rubio, by the way, I've heard there's like nothing to report on that, so... Yeah, just going to take time and, and let it run its course. So, all right, Terry, so that road trip will be happening here. Um, let's stay on basketball a little bit before we wrap up here. Your Faith in You column, which is coming out on Saturday, it was about Bob Knight. And we mentioned that Bob Knight passed away just after we finished taping last week. But uh, I, I thought you really tied Bob Knight and just kind of when you, when you, in regrets and not taking advantage of opportunities. Why don't you talk about what you wrote about with Bob Knight? I'm not saying I was a big friend of Bob Knight's or whatever, but I did know him. I mean, like if I would walk in a room, he knew who I was. He'd say, because we had a common friend, a guy named Roy Bates, who's a legendary high school coach in Wayne County. And Knight is from Orville, and Roy coached at a place called Northwestern and Chester. And um, then when Roy retired, Bob Knight took Roy Bates onto his staff at Indiana for four years where Roy became very close with Isaiah Thomas and Randy Whitman. So that's the background. And Joe Tate was close with Roy Bates. Hence, I became close with Roy Bates. Roy had a radio show down in Wayne County. And then Knight would come to town for various things. And Roy told me to come down and talk to Bob Knight. And all that. So I got to know Knight. And I would watch him. And he could be, like, so charming. Because a lot of these events that Roy would host was for a scholarship fund. And these elderly people would come. And he's charming and this and that. And then for, like, no reason, he, like, dropped three F-bombs. You know, just why? And it just seemed like he would do it because he wanted to. But the thing that I forgot when I read the obituaries about Knight, and Knight had a ton of good qualities. The kids graduated, no NCAA violations. A lot of his players really liked him. But when he was fired in 2000, he vowed he was never going back to Indiana. Miles Brand was the guy who um, fired him, later became Brand left after 2002 to go to the NCAA and run it. Right. The night turned down, I had that, wasn't it three different, like, uh, reunions for his championship teams? And he wouldn't go back. 
it's amazing. All those players that he coached and all the relationships that he had, he, because of the grievance he had against IU and the way things ended, he just, he didn't, it was the 76 team, right? 87. He missed all the reunions, the Steve Alford team, yeah. the Scott May team, the, that, that team in the seventies went undefeated and it's yeah. one of the greatest teams of all time. And they had their 40th reunion and he didn't go back for it. Um, but he did I go think, back for the last one though. Yeah. Players for, for were the, for begging yeah. him to come back. And I mean, Miles Brand died like in 2009 and he was still, you know, boycotting this. Okay. So in 2020, by the way, at then, Bob was starting to really be in the early stages of Alzheimer's mm. and they convinced him to go. And when my faith column runs, by the way, you'll see pictures of a younger Bob Knight and then Bob Knight at the 2020 reunion which thank God he did. And he had a, and those of us who have dealt with people with dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, some days are better than others. Well, he had a good day that day and was fairly, you know, cognizant of what was going on and players love to see him. Well, what I wrote about too, is sometimes we get mad in our family because a basketball team, especially like there could be a family. It wasn't a bunch of one and dones back then. Those guys played four years for night and they, they wanted to see him. And yeah, you could talk to him on the phone, but get everybody together and start telling stories and the coaches there. I mean, you just, you can't replicate that. And sometimes it's like that in families. We get mad about something that happens in a family and we start boycotting everything. And then we're boycotting a whole bunch of people who had nothing to do with what we're mad at. That That's where the faith column comes into. And, you know, Bob probably in his stubbornness would never admit he regretted it. I was thankful at the end. He did go to the 2020 reunion, but I just thought that when I read that, I felt so sad. You know, you missed opportunities with players who probably loved and hated you at the same time. But you know this, after they're done, they really want to see you. Yeah, and it made me think of the column you write around the holidays a lot of times, Terry, where people get in arguments over politics or, or whatever, and they just hold that one-day grudge forever and never reconnect with those people. And it, it, it's just sad. And you look back and just all the missed opportunities. Um, so I think there's a great lesson there for all of us. So uh, interesting guy, really just, a, just you, you see him doing coaches shows and he'll be talking on his coaches show at Indiana. All of a sudden he'll just stop and say, you know, we're so bleeping terrible. And yeah. in the middle on, on camera, it was just uh -huh. like a switch would go off. And, and he really, he really held things tightly uh, grudges especially so it I was nice I, could, to I wish one. i could remember more about the conversation but i remember he showed up at winter haven he was friends with tony la Russa. the cardinals were playing the tribe and it's a spring training and then i kind of saw him afterwards toward he was waiting for la Russa in the outfield and so i just kind of walked over hey bob you know terry oh yeah terry how you doing we ended up talking baseball the whole time he loved jim tomey and la Russa. he was like the most relaxed i've seen him and maybe because it was a sport, by the way, he knew his baseball too, but maybe because it wasn't about basketball or he didn't even have, quote, have to be Bob Knight. It was just two guys talking ball at an outfield of an empty stadium in Winter Haven. And that's my favorite night memory. And so, like I said, there were so many sides to this guy. 
Yeah, fascinating character. So, um, all right, Terry, we got to move along here. We got a couple of letters uh, that we asked for back when we did our 100th episode. Um, you have asked fans to write in where they live and kind of why they're Cleveland sports fans. We've got a couple today we're going to get to. First one is from Greg McCodine. I hope I said your last name, Greg. Uh, pronounced it right, Greg. And Greg says, hey, Terry and David, my name is Greg. I live in Washington, D.C., but I grew up in Northeast Ohio living Cleveland sports and reading Terry's writing. As a child of the 90s, the answer to which Cleveland team I care about most is easy. It's the Guardians. There was nothing like going to all those sellouts as a 10, as a 10 or 15-year-old. After watching the Browns, the answer to why I care about sports sure seems to be because I enjoy pain and misery. <laughs> but I suppose there is something to loyalty and remaining connected to the area where I grew up. Luckily, even though we lived down in North Canton, my mom insisted that we subscribe to the Beacon Journal. She didn't know it, but I, it meant I got the benefit of growing up with Terry's great sports writing, which led me to his books as well. I even emailed you about 20 years ago for career advice. I still can't believe you took the time to send a thoughtful response. Thanks for everything. Congratulations on 100 episodes. I look forward to hundreds more. So that's a nice story, Terry. It really is, and I appreciate those readers more than ever. Um, so that's – I'm still astounded by, you know, the different people that i run into over the years in, in this. So, by the way, I think there's a some strange twisted joy in shared misery when it comes to sports. I think you're scenes. right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it binds it binds us together for whatever teams we follow. So, um, all right, Terry, we got one more here. It's from Joe Sebastian, and Joe says, "Dear Terry, I'm from Hermitage, Pennsylvania, about one and a half hours from Cleveland. I've been a Cleveland sports fan since the 1960s when my dad brought me with him to see Indians games at the old stadium. I've been a Cavs fan since 1970 and have seen games at the old arena, the Coliseum, and the Fieldhouse. I've read Terry's columns." in the Akron and Cleveland papers and online and have several of his books. I've also come to several of Terry's talks at the Niles and Boardman libraries. I used to listen to Pete Franklin on the radio, and now I listen to Terry on his podcast. Terry loves Cleveland sports, and he shares his love with the fans on his podcast. And that's from Joe Sebastian from Pennsylvania. So thanks for that, Joe. Um, well, this this is easy, and it's fun to talk about this stuff. And the great thing is when the Browns mess up, yeah, it's painful and it's annoying, but frankly, it doesn't really change our lives a whole lot. Unless maybe some of us are really dumb to bet at the wrong time. But otherwise, it, it really doesn't. Whereas I think if you live long enough, we all know about that late night call that turns our lives upside down. And it's not about the, the fact that the quarterback's not going to play this week. It's about something in our family. So uh, I love the fact that I always say sports is a diversion. I have no problems working in the diversion department, and I'm so thankful that people want to read about it, even if they do suffer in the process. All right. So fans, Terry Pluto fans worldwide, you want to get everything that Terry does in a given week. This is a great time. I can drop a plug in here, Terry, for your newsletter. Yes. Go to cleveland.com slash newsletters. You just click a box for Terry's uh, newsletter. It, it put in your email. It takes literally a, like a minute, and you're good to go. You can get everything from Terry's Browns, Guardians, Cavs stuff. It's Faith Column. It'll all be in there. So sign up for that. And then we want to mention your book one more time, right? Yes, TerryPlutoBook.com, right? Yeah, all one word, TerryPlutoBook.com. And it's that's the way to get a signed copy. And also, like, on um, Twitter or X, I posted something, and also on my Facebook page where you just click on it. And the guy with the sign, and that's 
which we'll see a lot during the holidays. All right, you see a guy with the sign. Do you give him money or not? How do you handle that? It's a very interesting moral question. Um, and so that's uh, that was one of the most uh, read faith columns I wrote. And there's a whole bunch of other ones in there. Everything from some of the travel pieces I did to the Civil War to, uh, as they say in the, uh, the African-American church, uh, they're going to say, come on, you all say family mess. And the congregation says, family mess. Well, now you know about that, <laughs> family mess. And we're always navigating some sort of family mess. And in my columns, I deal a lot with that, too. All right. Be sure to pick that up and uh, get an autographed copy. So so we will not be podcasting next. Week. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll see where the Browns are at in the standings at that point. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on Terry's Talking.